0: As we move into Christmas time, we're starting a new message series. We're going to be in for the next three Sundays as we lead up to Easter. Easter? Gosh, I just time traveled, you guys. As we lead up to Christmas, we can't skip Christmas. Oh, no. Um, as we lead up to Christmas, and we're going to talk about a specific part of the Christmas story. Uh, we're going to talk about the three gifts that the wise men or the magi brought. Jesus, um, And so we're going to start that today and the significance of those. We're going to give you a little, so today we're going to look context for who are the Magi, or who are the wise men, and then we're going to look at one of the gifts today because they're a part of the Christmas story, but they're kind of obscure, right? We think of the Christmas story, I, the first thing I think of is not, is not the Magi, it's not the wise men, it's not the gifts. I, I think of angels and a baby and Mary and Joseph and an nativity, and I think of shepherds and like all of that. I'm like, oh yeah, there are these guys there that brought gifts too. Um, and so I want to look at that together this morning because they do show up you know I don't think they get as much love as they should they're not in that many Christmas songs but there's a couple all right uh, they're definitely in a lot of times our little nativity scenes um, even though that's not entirely accurate we'll get to that at some point during <laughs> during this series um, you know they, they show up in our Christmas pageants anybody has anybody in this room ever been a wise man in a Christmas play yeah all right wow the based on the people that are raising their hands, I would say no. That was a lie. You were not wise men. <laughs> All right, I know it's so funny. I'm sorry. I got to stop. We're never going to get to this message. Um, so, just Christmas trivia, Christmas quiz. How many wise men were there? Say it loud. Ha <laughs> ha, it was a trick question, there wasn't. <laughs> actually, maybe there was, but the truth is, we don't actually know. We don't know how many there were. There are three gifts that are listed in the Christmas story, so we kind of think, oh, there must have been three wise men. But we don't know, there could have been a lot more than that. Um, they probably most likely traveled with a large entourage of people, because wise men were a uh, kind of an important, powerful group of, of people. Um, they were a class of known for their uh, astrology. They could read the stars and interpret dreams. Um, originally they served the Persian king and so most likely they're on this journey and there's like a large entourage of them and so in the Christmas story Jesus is born in the city or the town is not a city the town of Bethlehem um, sometime between the year most likely 6 and 4 BC Uh, Herod is the king at the time and Jesus is born and these magi these wise men we, we read that they come from the east Uh, The east is the biblical language uh, way of talking about the land of exile. So the Jewish people have been carried into exile about 600 years before the birth of Jesus. They've been exiled into the land of Babylon. Eventually, Persia comes along and conquers Babylon. And so that's the region that these magi come from. And the exile would explain how they got to know about this Jewish prophecy and this king that was supposed to be born. Uh, Because some of the the, the Jewish people returned from exile when it ended, but many stayed scattered around the known world. And they brought their customs and their religion and their teaching with them. And so these foreigners, these magis from somewhere in the east are familiar with these teachings, they're familiar with the prophecy and the signs to be looking for. They read these stars, they see a star, and they start following it. Um, And that's kind of where we're going to pick up. They arrive um, in... uh, in the town of Bethlehem after they've had a conversation with Herod. We're not going to get into that. But here's what we read. This is in Matthew's Gospel. It says, When they saw the star, they were overwhelmed with joy. Entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. And falling to their knees, they worshipped him. And then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And so we we see these wise men or the magi and they're just, they're overwhelmed with joy and their response is to worship. And it's a really unlikely group of people to worship. This is actually something that comes up throughout the Christmas story over and over again. And honestly, all throughout the gospels is it's always the most unlikely people that recognize Jesus for who he is. It's never like the religious leaders. It's not like the powerful and the prominent. It's like the, it's the person you go, really? Like they got it. They saw it. They understood it. And so here you have this group of magi that don't have the Jewish heritage and background. They're from a foreign land and they show up and recognize Jesus and they worship him. And one of the ways that they worship is they bring him some gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Um, Those are some weird gifts. Okay, like, I mean, gold, I guess I know what that is. Frankincense and myrrh, it's like, what the heck are those? Uh, Unless you're familiar with essential oils, then you know what they are. Uh, But there's some strange gifts. It's a weird thing to get a baby. So, Christy and I, we've had two children, Braxton and Paisley, and these were not the baby shower gifts that we got, okay? No one showed up. Nobody brought any gold. That's for darn sure. Okay. And by the way, if you're ever wondering, oh, it's a shower. What should I get? You know, what should I get them? Gold is always a good thing. All right. Next time someone has a baby, be like, look, I got you gold. Um, but like, yeah, this, they're they're weird. They're strange. But at that time, um, they would have been very, very valuable. Obviously, gold. But the frankincense and myrrh as well have been incredibly valuable. They also have been really practical. There's something that the family could have used. But more than that, and what we're going to talk about in this series is they were they were spiritual. These gifts had a spiritual component. There was a a theological significance to them. They had a deeper meaning than just what was presented on the the surface. They they foreshadowed events that would happen. They pointed to the reality of who this this child was. And that's something that the, the biblical authors often do, that all throughout Scripture to understand that the biblical authors, and especially as we get into the Gospels, the accounts that tell us about the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they they didn't write things on accident like everything they did the words they chose the things they choose to include the, the order that they put things in the way they communicated like they did it on purpose they had an agenda in the story that they were telling the gospel authors didn't just, they weren't just doing history they were doing history and at the same time theology they weren't uh, content they weren't interested in just telling you what happened they also want to tell us what it means um, and we kind of think, well, that's not how you do history. Like, history should just be reporting the events, reporting the facts. Um, but that's not how ancient people did things. And so that would be imposing our modern standard on an ancient people. And even today, history is never just the facts. Like, there's always a bias. There's always an agenda. Because as human beings, we skew in certain ways. And so the gospel authors had an agenda. And so when we, when we bump up against things like, okay, random gifts and wise men, you know, we got to ask the question, why? Like, what was the point of including that detail. Matthew is actually the only one who includes this little story, this little account. So why does he put this in here? It's interesting that Matthew writes his gospel from a perspective of wanting to uh, reach uh, the Jewish people. He wants to present Jesus as the Jewish Messiah, the one that uh, had fulfilled the promises, the one they were, were waiting for. And so when you get into Matthew's gospel, You bump up against things like these genealogies that, if you've ever tried to read the Bible or go through like the Matthew or the New Testament, you're like, like you open it up and it's like, so and so is the son of so and so is the son of. You're like, why? Skip that. But he put that in there on on purpose. He wanted to point to Jesus as being connected and related to all of the right people, and so he draws Jesus' lineage back to David and back to Abraham because it's really important. He, the wording that he uses, Matthew won't even use the, the phrase the kingdom of God. He uses the kingdom of heaven because the Jewish people, like you don't write out God's name and so he's conscious of that. Um, he presents Jesus as like the new lawgiver, as the new Moses, just as Moses went up on the mountain and got the commands from God. So Jesus in Matthew has this long teaching where he goes up on a mountain, the Sermon on the Mount, and gives this new teaching, this new instruction. And so Matthew is tracking along with that and these gifts that these wise men bring point back to fulfillments of what they were expecting or what they were waiting the messiah to be as found in the old testament and so matthew says that they brought a gift of gold which points to jesus as king jesus as king because the the anticipated messiah would be one who was a king in the line of david whose kingdom would reign forever he says they brought gifts of myrrh that points to uh, myrrh was used in burial it was used to prepare a body it's a sign of suffering Points to Jesus as the suffering servant described by the prophet Isaiah. And he talked about frankincense. We're we'll talking about frankincense today. Um, so, frankincense. Interesting. Uh, it, is, it is actually from a tree. It's from the bark of a tree called the Boswellia Sakara, and I probably butchered that name, but you're not going to fact check me, so it's okay. <laughs> it's the right tree. It's probably just the wrong pronunciation. It's a pretty rare tree, only found in one specific region of, uh, of the world in the Arabian Peninsula. Um, and what they would do is they, they make a cut into the bark of the tree, and the little sap bleeds out, and it dries and crystallizes on there. Uh, and then you get this little thing, and this little piece is probably really hard for you to see, but you all are going to get one of these. As you leave today, you're going to get a little piece of frankincense. And I want to invite you, as we do this series throughout this Christmas season, just put this somewhere where you're going to think of it, where you're going to see it, where you're going to remember it as we go through the other uh, parts as well. But this little thing, you get it and you pick it off of there, and it's called a tear. Okay, this is a tear of frankincense because... You cut the tree and it was crying. Actually, I don't know. I don't know if that's why it's called a tear. But in my mind, that's why it's called a tear. And so they would take this and they would grind it up and it could be used as just like an incense that would be burnt that can be mixed in into made like a balm or an ointment and it can be uh, um, incorporated and infused into oil as well. Uh, It was very expensive and valuable in biblical times. And honestly, it is today too. Because when I was trying to do some research for this, I'm like, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get some frankincense. And actually, this middle thing on the graphic here, the oil is frankincense, um, like oil, and then we got gold, and we got myrrh. So I'm like, okay, I'll be like this. I'll get some frankincense oil. You all know how much a bottle of frankincense essential oil costs? You know how, how big a bottle of essential oil is, right? It's like this big. It was like 100 bucks. And I'm like, nah, sorry, you guys are getting this. <laughs> all right. I love you, but not that much. Um <laughs> But you're going to get the general idea. You're going to be able to smell it. It has a very kind of piney kind of smell with little undertones of like citrus and spice. It's very nice. I, I enjoy it. Um, but it was used to heal sicknesses and treat wounds. And so in that way, it points to the idea of Jesus as our healer. Um, but what I want to talk about is the other use that it had, um, that it was used to be burnt uh, as an incense in religious practices. And so the the the, uh, the priest of Israel would take this this frankincense and they would put it on top of these burning coals in a censer and it would make all of this the smoke and the smoke would billow up and it would rise up to the heavens and it symbolized the prayers of of god's people going up to god and so in that way frankincense the gift of frankincense that was presented to jesus portrays the priestly role of jesus that jesus is the great high priest now when you hear that you may be like okay that's cool, I guess, but what on earth does that mean? Because that's depending on you know what your upbringing was. If you were ever spent any time in or around church, depending on the kind of church, you might be like, "Oh yeah, I think I know what the idea of a priest is," and it may be like, "No, I have no clue what that is." Okay, um, it's kind of strange. I think for us here, we don't we don't. Most of us, I think, for knowing your stories, I know at least my story, the idea of priest is kind of foreign, but some, again, some of you may be familiar, but the high priest, the, the office of the priest in Israel's history was so, so important. It was crucial to the way that the people of Israel related to God. The priest was like the, the intermediary. He was the go-between between the people and God. But the role of the high priest, if you could boil it down to one thing, was to represent the people before. God. And they would do that in a couple different ways. One would be through the sacrifices that the priests made, the animal sacrifices. And the other way would be through um, offering incense as intercession, as prayer. And so the priests would make sacrifices of animals, and we're like, really, we're going to go there today? That's where we're going today, so welcome to church. It might be a little weird today. Like, they would make sacrifices of these animals. And again, it's weird to us, but it was normal and common for people at that time. Um, to ancient peoples, that was just part of life. That was part of religion. That was part of your day-to-day routine. It, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't have batted an eye at that. So again, we're going we're to kind of withhold our kind of judgment on an ancient people. Um, it was normal to them to have the this, this sacrificial system. And so the sacrifice and the incense being burnt, the, the intercession, the prayer on behalf of the people. Let's talk about sacrifice. Um, the idea of animal sacrifice was, was crucial to, again, the people relating to God. From from like the beginning of humanity, there was an issue that arose, and there was these two primary uh, forces that were opposed to one another. That date all the way back to the garden. In the garden, God created people, um, and and He said, "Look, I'm making you in My image. That means I want you to take the goodness and the beauty of the garden, and I want you to take that into the world. I want you to bring about flourishing and beauty all throughout creation. But here's how you're going to do it. You're going to do it." as my image bearers. That means you're going to define what is good and what is bad, what is right and what is wrong by my definition, and if you do that, it'll bring bring flourishing to all of creation and all of humanity, and humanity's like, nah, I'm good, we're going to do it our way instead. And sin enters into the world, and honestly, the rest of human history has been the story of that playing out. It's been war and destruction and murder and rape and on and on and on. Human beings just tearing each other apart, do what's best for me at the expense of everyone Else. And sin enters into the world, so you have these two opposing forces then where you have the holiness of God, and we're going to talk about that, and the sinfulness of people. A holy God and sinful people. And I know that sin isn't necessarily something that is a popular topic to talk about, nor is it a word that we use in our like daily vocabulary. We don't go around saying, gosh, I am so sorry that I sinned against you. Again, you'd get some weird looks from people. Um, so it's not something we use, and sometimes we kind of, um, we, we want to soften it a little bit, even in, within a religious context. We'll say, look, oh, you know, we've all made some mistakes, and nobody's perfect, but sin goes deeper than just mistakes, because a mistake implies I didn't have the right information, or I didn't know, and I'll do better, but sin, like, what, what do you call a mistake that you did on purpose? Or, or that you had all the information and you did it on purpose and you did it again and again and again it's like okay maybe i was lying when i said it was mis- a mistake i did it on purpose i wanted to i wanted to define right and wrong on my own uh, on my own terms and that brings about just so much chaos and death and destruction and sometimes we kind of want to push that aside and say no 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 people are basically good like we're good it's okay it's okay i'm i'm good you're good yeah we made some mistakes but Turn on the news for a few seconds, scroll through your social media feed, and try to convince yourself that as human beings, we're basically good. As we watch people kill each other, as we watch, again, rape and war and pillaging and all these things, as we, I mean, just this week, there's another story of a school shooting and just the tragic loss of life. There's no way we can step away from that and go, you know, people are basically good. People have just made some mistakes. There's a, a sickness within us of saying, I want to determine what's right and wrong on my own terms. Um, And we kind of have this kind of soft thing we do, like, well, well, your truth is yours and mine is mine. There is no objective sense of right or wrong or morality. And that's kind of the postmodern thinking. And while we have that as a theory, it's interesting that it doesn't actually work, so we don't live that way. Like we In our day-to-day lives, the way we live our lives, we live like, no, there is a definite sense of truth. There is something that is right and there is something that is wrong. There is objective truth, objective Morality, And so it's not that we don't believe in it. It's the question of, well, where am I going to get that standard from? Where am I going to find that standard? And if there is a God, and I'm not arguing for the existence of God today. That's a different message series. Um, But the majority of people on the planet today still believe that there is a God. And so if there is a God, he has to be. that that source, that standard of objective truth and morality. He's the uncaused cause. He is the the infinite source of good. He's the backdrop of good and love in the universe. Without him, we have no idea of even being able to measure and say, this thing over here is evil, it is wrong, without having something good to hold it up against. And so if there is a God, he is that standard. That's the incredible news. The bad news is (laughs) we don't meet that standard like ever, ever. We are so messed up. We're so messed up. Um, And again, it's like, well, I don't know, I don't know, because... Do a little thought experiment with me. Do other people have standards for you? And sometimes they're good, sometimes they're not. The answer is yes. Do you live up to their standards for you? No. Do you have standards for you? Yes. Do you always live up to the standards you set for yourself? No. And so if there is a perfect, infinite, awesome God, and he has any standards at all, if we can't even keep our own standards as broken people... Probably gonna fall short of his, right? I mean, like that's just that is the reality of it. Another thought experiment, and this will like, you know, if you're like, I'm, I'm pretty good, I'm pretty good, how about this? If if people could hear every thought that you thought all the time, would they think you were pretty good? <laughs> Nervous laughter, because it's like, oh God, get out of my head. You don't wanna be in there, trust me. That's the reality. Like we are sinful, broken, jacked up people. People, and the sooner we recognize that, okay, that's not the end of the story. There's good news. But here's the thing, but God is holy. He's not any of those things. He's not sinful, broken, or jacked up. He is perfection. And sometimes we, 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 we take lightly the, the sinfulness of ourselves or of people because we don't understand the holiness of God. Holiness isn't something that we talk about much anymore either because it's kind of an old school term, like the holiness of God. And sometimes we think to be holy just means to be like morally perfect, but it's much, much greater than that. To be holy means to be completely set apart, to be completely different, to be completely other than, to be completely transcendent. And so holiness is not just one of God's attributes, it's the perfection of all of them that he is set apart, he is completely other, he is holy in his power, he is holy in his goodness, he's holy in his righteousness, he's holy in his justice, he's holy in his his love, he's holy in his grace, he's holy in his mercy, like he is completely other and set apart in all of those things. It's actually the reason why we worship him, because there is none like him. The reason, if you're a follower of Jesus, the reason why we're like, hey, we we worship you, we love you, you're incredible, we sing praises, is because he's the only one like that. If there was someone or something else that compared to him, he'd be like, well, you're just one of of multiple, but there's not, he's holy. So we've got the holiness of God and the sinfulness of people, and those two things don't mix. Because of God's holiness, he can't be in the presence of sin. It breaks intimacy with God. This is why God hates sin so much. Like, man, God, why are you such a stickler? What's the big deal about how I live? Like, God hates sin because it destroys people's lives and it separates us from him. What he desires more than anything is to be in a relationship with you to know you because he knows it's in relationship with him that you become who you've truly been created to be. That you, you become the, the human that can flourish, that can walk in who you've been made to be, that can experience joy and love and peace and goodness and all of those things. And those things are only realized when we are in the presence and in relationship with God. But sin comes along and creates this barrier and says, yeah, you can't be in relationship with God. And so God in his love and his justice says, I gotta do something about that. And in Israel's history, that becomes the sacrificial system. That it becomes this way of dealing with the sinfulness of people, and the high priest then became like the, the mediator of this sacrificial system to make a way for people to get back to God, to bridge the gap. So one time per year, there was something called the Day of Atonement. On the calendar today, this is known as Yom Kippur, so if you see that on your calendar, this is the Day of Atonement, um, where, where the high priest would make a sacrifice for the entire nation of Israel on behalf of the people. It'd be a temporary sacrifice of an innocent animal, to be a temporary covering for the people's sins. And so there's a whole process that they had to go through. Uh, the high priest would first, he'd have to make a sacrifice. He'd have, to, he'd have to kill a bull for himself to cover for his sins because the high priest, after all, he's he's human too. Like he's messed up. He's got his own issues. He's got his own sin and his own heart conditions. It's like, it's like man, like how am I supposed to go before God on behalf of these people and to, to bridge this gap when I'm a jacked up human too? And so God's made a way for that. He says, okay, first you got to kill this bull and then you got to sprinkle some of the blood on the altar. And again, I know it's, weird for us, just hang with me. He's got to sprinkle some of the blood blood on the altar, and then after that's been done, you can go into the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies was like the hot spot of God's presence on earth. So whenever the nation of Israel is wandering through the wilderness, they set up the tabernacle, and in the tabernacle in the center of that is the Holy of Holies. And then later it becomes a permanent structure in Jerusalem as the temple, and in the temple is the Holy of Holies. And it is the place where God's presence on earth was found. You go into the Holy of Holies, there's the Ark of the Covenant. And on top of the Ark of the Covenant, there's this cover, there's the atonement cover, the mercy seat. And there's these, uh, these cherubim with their wings across, like guarding it. And it, like, that is, the, that is the, the pinpoint of God's presence on earth. And it was meant to be a symbol and a representation of the heavenly throne room. That God sits on his throne in heaven and there's these angelic beings all around him and they're crying out, holy, holy, holy for all eternity. And so that's what the Holy of Holies was. And one time a year, the high priest could go in there, they could go before God. After he's made the sacrifice of the bull, he goes into the Holy of Holies and he takes some incense and burns it on some coals, some of this frankincense, and it would, it would billow up and the smoke would surround the mercy seat as, as, as prayers of cries of mercy for God's people up to God. And then he would take a goat and sacrifice the goat um, as an offering, as a sacrifice that symbolized uh, an innocent one dying for the guilty. And then after that goat was sacrificed, he would go outside and there would be a second goat. This was known as the scapegoat. It's where we get this, that phrase from in our modern language. And he would confess the sins of the people onto the scapegoat. And they would send the scapegoat out into the wilderness away from the camp symbolizing uh, that sin was going out into the region of death and destruction and out into into the wilderness because sin had to be carried out of the camp. It couldn't be there anymore because God was in the camp. God was in the presence of the people. The pe- he dwelt there with his people, so sin couldn't be there. So they confess it onto this, this goat and send it off into the wilderness. And it's this whole elaborate system so that God's people, the nation of Israel, could be in relationship. And so the priest has got to cleanse himself, and he's got to go in there once a year, and he's got to burn the incense, and he's got to make the sacrifice, and he's got he's to confess the sins onto the other goat, and they send it out into the wilderness. And this whole thing happens so that people can be in relationship with God. And it seems extreme to us. And again, this is normal for them, but it is extreme in a way. Like, it's like, this is, this, is a, this is like, wow, that's crazy. That's intense. It's like, that's a huge process, and we're killing animals, and it's just weird. And it is extreme, but it's extreme because it needs to be. Because of the holiness, again, like the holiness of God. Because God is holy in his justice. It means he's perfect in his justice. Like, the very definition of what justice is, is found in God. Because he's holy and perfect in his justice, no amount of evil, no amount of sin, even the smallest thing, we're like, that's not that big of a deal. But to a holy God, it is, because the standard is holiness and perfection. And because he's he's holy in his justice, like, sin has to be punished. But at the same time, he's holy in his mercy. And so mercy has to be extended. And in the sacrificial system, that's what plays out. That at the very same time, the sacrifice represented as a symbol of God's justice being served and also his mercy being extended to his people. And year after year after year after year, this went on and this continued and the priests would make the sacrifices and they would do their thing and they would confess the sins and they would burn the incense. And this was just a day in the life of the priest and in a year in the life of the the sacrificial system. And this is how the, the Israelites related to God. And so now as we close our service, somebody get the goat and we're going we're to, <laughs> just kidding. I mean, I'm grateful. It's, it's funny, but like, like, we, that, that was the old covenant. The really good news is if you're a follower of Jesus now, if you're considering Christianity, that's done, that's over, that's accomplished. That has been superseded and fulfilled by something better. That's what we call the old covenant. There is a new covenant here now that is new, it is better, and it has made the old obsolete. And there's a letter in the, uh, in the New Testament, it's known as the book of Hebrews, that goes, goes through like painstakingly through this whole idea. It was a letter that was written to Jewish Christians. So these are followers of Jesus in the first century that grew up Jewish, that way they were, they were down with the whole sacrificial system. They knew how it worked. And the author to the letter of Hebrews, it, it really reads as like a sermon or a lecture. He kind of goes through and shows how now through Jesus, the old system is gone. It's been completed, it's been fulfilled, and and something new is here. Something new and better, the old is done, the old is obsolete. That every part of the old has been replaced, including the office of the high priest. He describes the old as like a shadow. So let's pick that up, Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse one, he writes this, he says, since the law, now the law is, it is that old covenant. It is the arrangement that God had with the nation of Israel. Since the law has only a shadow of the good things to come. He says like the way things used to work this old covenant is like a shadow. You know when you see a shadow of something, you can kind of make out what that thing is. You can see the silhouette, but it's not the thing itself. He says like that's what the old covenant was. That's what the sacrificial system was. That's what the temple system was. It was a shadow of the good things to come and not the reality itself of those things. And so it can never perfect the worshipers by the same sacrifices they continually offer year after year. Otherwise, wouldn't they have stopped being offered since the worshipers purified once and for all would no longer have any consciousness of sins? Now, just a little warning. This is going to be very wordy and kind of like, what are they talking about? But again, written to Jewish people who are so familiar with the sacrificial system, they're like, oh, yeah. And so kind of what he's saying is like, listen, if that was the final kind of like the resolution to our sin problem, Wouldn't one sacrifice have been good? Like, why do we have to keep doing this year after year after year? He's like, it wasn't the the full thing. Uh, But in the sacrifices, there's a reminder of their sins year after year. For it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, as he was coming into the world, he said, you did not desire sacrifice and offering, but you prepared a body for me, talking of, of Jesus. You did not delight in whole burnt offerings and sin offerings. And then I said, see, it's written about me in the scroll, I have come to do your will. He says, after he says above, you did not desire and delight, or delight in sacrifices and offerings, whole burnt offerings and sin offerings, which are offered according to the law. So he's saying, like, hey, we know what the law says, we know how the old system worked, it was sacrifices, it was offerings, that's how it was, but God did not necessarily delight in that. He then says, I've come to do your will. That there was a greater will, a more true will of what God ultimately wanted that was greater than the sacrificial system. He says he takes away the first, talking about the sacrifices and offerings, to establish the second, talking about this new covenant that Jesus has established. That the will of God from the beginning of time has always been the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus so that people could be in relationship with him. That is his will. And so when Jesus shows up, he does away with the first, the first covenant with the sacrifices, and establishes the second. And by this will, we've been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus once and for all time. And he says this, every priest, now talking again about the priests in the temple, every priest stands day after day ministering and offering the same sacrifices time after time, which can never take away the sins. And so he's like, you guys, we know how this works. Every single year, like every year of our lives that we can ever remember, the priests are there, they're making sacrifices time after time after time after time. It's the same old story. It's the same old process. They can never take away sins. But this man, talking of Jesus, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. He says, now now the sacrificial system is done. It's over. That there has been a final sacrifice made by the true high priest. This high priest is Jesus, and the sacrifice he made was himself. The sacrificial system was done. It was over. In fact, interestingly, not a long while after this, in the year 70 AD, the temple in Jerusalem was completely destroyed. Rome came in, destroyed the temple, and the sacrificial system ended permanently. The final sacrifice of Jesus had been made. And he says that now he, he goes, he's seated at the right hand of God. That means he goes into the true sanctuary. As the high priest went into the Holy of Holies, it was just like a shadow or a picture of the heavenly throne room. Jesus is now there at the right hand of God. He sits down at the right hand of God. The, the author is doing this, this interesting comparison where he says the priests, they stand day after day making the sacrifices. The reason they're standing is because the work is never done. But Jesus sits down because it's over. It's finished. It's completed. The work is done. And now he sits at the right Hand of God. He's made the the atoning sacrifice to cover the sins of all people, all times, all places. Everyone can be forgiven. Everyone can have access to God. Everyone can be in relationship with Him. Everyone can experience life and flourishing in the presence of God. The, The atonement has been made. And now He's also seated at the right hand of God, interceding on our behalf, going before God on our behalf. He is now the representative to God on behalf of His people. He is the great high priest. When we think about priests, though, we think like cold, at least I do, distant, kind of like very religious, kind of like the priest is over there, the priest is untouchable. That's very much what the priests were in the sacrificial system. They did their, their religious duties, they were in charge of the sacrifices and all of those things, but that's not the picture that we need to have of Jesus. That's not the picture that the author of Hebrews wants us to have either. In Hebrews chapter four, he says that, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, and so he, again, he's in the heavenly realm. He's in the throne room of God. He's passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. That is, let us cling tightly to the things that we believe if you're a follower of Jesus, you believe, okay, he, he he came, he lived, he died, he rose. I can have a relationship with him. I'm invited into his kingdom. I've been made brand new. I'm a new creation. I'm his son or his daughter. What's, what he says of true, is true of me is true of me. I'm loved. I'm valued. I'm made new. I have eternal life. Like all of these beautiful things, he says, you can hold fast to that confession. You can cling to that belief no matter what you are facing in your life. That's the thing you can hold on to. Why? Because we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who's been tempted in every way as we are, and yet without sin. The author of Hebrews wanted his, his original Jewish audience to understand, he would want us to understand as well that he, that Jesus, your high priest, understands He understands you, he knows what you're going through, he knows your weaknesses, he knows the trials that you face, he knows the pain that you're in, he knows whatever is on your mind at this moment as we sit here, what you brought into this place with you, what you're going to go home to, what this week has in store for you, he knows all the swirl of emotions and pain, he knows exactly what you are going through. See, one of the things that's tragic about what the church has so often done to Jesus is we've kind of made him this cold and distant, like, cleaned up version of a savior, where he's got the white flowing robes and the beautiful brown hair. And he's like standing like this, like, won't you come to me? And and, and we've just, we've sanitized Jesus. We've made it just so easy. We've done the same thing with the Christmas story. We're like, oh, look, there's a baby and Mary, and it's a silent night. And it's like, I'm sorry, like baby Jesus was screaming. Okay, just like all of us came into the world. He was crying. He was hungry. Like the whole experience, it was in a, probably like a cave. It was cold. It was dark. There were animals. It was not this beautiful, like glorious thing. It was glorious, but in a different way. But sometimes we clean Jesus up so much that we forgot, we forget that he lived the human experience as well and knows what you're going through. That, that, I mean, think about his life. I mean, think about the Christmas story. He was born to Mary. Mary was probably like a 13-year-old girl out of wedlock, and Jesus was born to her. How do you think that went in the little town that he grew up in? I'm sure people talked. I'm sure it wasn't easy. He grew up in a small, like really small, unimportant kind of podunk town. It was not a hub of power. It was an unimportant place in the world. There was nothing special about where he lived or where he came from. He would have lived much of his life in poverty. He was constantly criticized, ridiculed, hated. Again, he was fully human, so he knew. Like We get that he was 100% God, but he was 100% human as well, so he knew what it was to experience pain, physical pain in his body. To be sick, to have a cold, to be sick to your stomach. like He experienced those things. To know hunger, to be thirsty, to have stress. He knew what it was to lose friends and loved ones and mourn for their deaths. Even though being God, he knew that wasn't the end of the story. He wept for them anyway. He knew what it was to face temptation from Satan over and over and over again, to do the wrong thing instead of choosing the right path. He he was falsely accused and betrayed, had his back turned on him by his friends. And on the cross, he felt like he was abandoned by God, even though he wasn't. As the weight of our sin is upon him, he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus knew exactly what it was to go through the human experience. So we have a high priest, as Jesus, our great high priest, who's not only atoned for you, not only is interceding for you, but he understands you. That, that he's not just atoned; it's not just that hey, your sins are forgiven, so you can be uh, in right relationship with God. Although that's true, and not only is he interceding for you, of like hey, you can go to God now because Jesus is your representative in this kind of go-between. That's true, but he also understands you and everything that you face, and everything that you go through, and the pain that you feel, and the uncertainty that you feel, and whatever this Christmas has, and whatever you've experienced. He's like I. I know it doesn't make it any better, but I understand. He understands us. That's one of the reasons why he lived. I mean, it's like, why did he just show up, you know, as a grown man, die, rise, and get it over with? Sometimes we we miss the significance. We, we're all about Jesus' death and resurrection, but we've missed the significance of his life. He showed up to be human. To show us what what it really looks like to live and what God has intended for humanity, to be the truly human one, to have the human experience and experience the things that we did. That's the beauty and the mystery of what's called the incarnation. The word become flesh. God in human flesh that God stepped onto the planet because he is Emmanuel he is God with us but not just God with us God with us as one of us knowing what it is to be human coming into the world as I said the way every single one of us does as a baby completely dependent upon other people and it's this story that we celebrate every year we sing songs about and we get excited about but it's this beauty of Jesus being human and knowing what our struggle is and part of that story Part of that story includes some obscure guys known as magi or wise men. (laughs) They bring some strange gifts that have incredible significance. Gold, because he's a king. Myrrh, because he will suffer. And frankincense, because he is our high priest. He goes on and says, Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Because he's the great high priest, because he's atoned for you, your sin is forgiven, because he's interceding for you, and because he understands you, you can now approach the throne of grace with boldness. Before, it was just the high priest that could go into the Holy of Holies one time per year. Now, because of Jesus, you and I can come before God anytime, anywhere, in any season of life, we come before the throne of grace we come before God and we receive the mercy and grace that we need. I love it. He says, you come boldly. Like you can, you can approach God. You don't have to be timid. You don't need to be afraid. You don't need to be ashamed. You don't need to be overly religious in the way that you come before God. And be like, Lord, here I am, blessed Lord. Like, I mean, if that's your thing, that's fine. Do it. But it's like, no, you just, you come before God and you come before him in boldness. Because now that you are in Christ, he is your heavenly father. He sees you as his child. He sees you as his child. That, that's what we celebrate at Christmas. We celebrate all these beautiful things about Jesus and what he has done, but now because of him we have access to the Father because he is our great high priest. He has atoned for us, covered our sin. He has interceded for us. He is sitting at the right hand of God, interceding for us in this very moment, and he understands us in whatever we're going through.